Well, do you think our choir believed what they were singing today? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful set of songs. David and I had talked about this over the last few months that we would have a longer song service today uh, in honor of our Lord and to sing uh, songs that remind us of the cross and obviously uh, wonderful songs. I appreciate the choir practicing. I appreciate their uh, passion for the Lord, and I appreciate our director. Amen. Amen. Uh, wonderful job of singing to the Lord and His glory. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate our Lord's final entrance into Jerusalem, climaxing in His crucifixion and resurrection. Every gospel writer records for us what we call the triumphant or triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That's why Palm Sunday holds such a special place in the life of the church and in its history. If you will remember, Jesus and his disciples were on their way from Jericho down to Jerusalem. And when they approached the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city... Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of him to fetch a stranger's donkey that had never been ridden before so that he could ride the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. You can find that story in all four gospel accounts. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. John, in his account, records for us that in all honesty, the disciples had no idea what Jesus was doing at the time. His disciples did not understand at first what Jesus was doing, but they did understand what Jesus did after his glorification. In other words, after the resurrection of Christ and his glorious ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father, a lot of things fell into place. After these things were accomplished. We might call all of these aha experiences. When the light goes on and you begin to understand all that Jesus had accomplished. We think about this when we read a novel. We start off reading, wondering where we're headed. Uh, but you can't truly grasp everything that takes place until you've read the last paragraph and or the climax of the story. So, in the early chapters... Uh, of the scripture, especially in the gospels, um, the disciples were wondering as the events took place what all these things meant or what was the meaning at all. And then there must have been thousands of aha moments when they understood what was taking place. Do you know, did you know that what took place in the triumphal entry was prophesied in the Bible? How many people knew that? Raise your hand. It's given for us in Zechariah. Why am I starting off this way? Because Palm Sunday, as you know it, was prophesied in the Bible. And what we've been learning in our study of Acts, especially in Paul's sermon, Acts 13, Paul's first sermon, that he is chronicling God's movement in the lives of the Israelites for some uh, 4,000 years. And remember, he's moving it all to show that the grace of God was active uh, toward a recalcitrant, rebellious a disobedient people. 
It was always the grace of God being extended out to people who were wayward and did not want to hear what their covenant God had to say to them. And remember, Paul does that for the first part of the sermon. And then he makes a transition to the Christ story to show them how uh, everything is fulfilled in Jesus. But listen to Zechariah chapter 9. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. So, that's Zechariah 9.9. So here we have the fulfillment in the Gospels of what Zechariah said through the leadership of the Holy Spirit was going to take place. And then here they were in the Gospels. After he had resurrected, they thought, you know what? There's a reason why he sent us ahead to fetch a donkey that had never been ridden before so that the prophecy could be fulfilled as given to us in the Scripture. So the bulk of last week's sermon, if you were here, was us fleshing out some great theological truths regarding this sermon in Acts. And remember what we did last week? Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God... To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him. We should not find that at all difficult to understand, right? Because they always rejected God in so many ways. They were always rebellious people. And he was saying that the Jerusalem rulers have been no different. They also rejected him. And they did so even hearing all of the prophets and the utterances from the scripture. Is it possible that Zechariah 9 was one of them? You reckon? So they were given these prophecies in the synagogue weekly. And though they found, him no, they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, what was written of him? Old Testament. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, I'm ready to preach, but... God raised. That's verse 30, right? I'm going to do that next week. But remember, we, we spent some time last week addressing the significance and crucial uh, nature of the cross of Christ and what that means for us. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that the crucifixion was public. It was painful. It was planned by God. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly it was also punishment for our sins. And it's precious to those who believe. I think I saw that today as you sang, right? That is precious to those who believe. Today, I want to address, in a, out of Acts chapter 13, this terminology of the fact that Jesus was placed upon a tree. Now, I'm going to get to the resurrection next week. We're preaching through Acts, and it's been glorious to do that. But we have to pause, put the brakes on, and think about what does it mean in verse 29 for Jesus to be placed upon a tree? Why didn't Paul just use cross terminology? If you will take your copy of God's Word and flip over to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read a section of Scripture and we're going to unpack this meaning today. Galatians 3 will be Paul's, Paul specifically mentioning the Old Testament verse, which is Deuteronomy 21, 23, which says, Cursed is the one 
anyone who is hanged upon a tree. And Paul is going to actually quote Deuteronomy 21, 23 in Galatians chapter 3. So the reason Paul uses tree in Acts 13 is because the tree means something to him. Remember, Paul was a covenant-keeping Jew. He had everything he thought perfectly right before God. And yet he was perfectly lost. And his understanding of Jesus being placed on a tree made full sense. See, he had all this stuff in his hard drive. He had studied the Old Testament thoroughly, way more than we could ever study it. But yet he didn't realize Jesus was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So the tree part brought to his understanding Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is any man who is hung upon a tree. And so in our text, this is what Paul's going to do. Listen to verse 10 of Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Man, that's a bombshell, isn't it? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's a direct quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For as it is written. Does this sound familiar? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What an incredible text of scripture. Now here's something you need to start, that we start with. It's very important that you understand what we mean by the law of Moses. It says the law, correct? So we have to differentiate between the rest of the scriptures, i.e. the New Testament, and what was given and expounded in the Old Testament. So it's very crucial that you think in terms, first, of how God came down on Mount Sinai and delivered to Moses those uh, Hebrew words, the ten words, which were, which was the law of God. And, you know, certainly there were ceremonial laws, there were dietary laws that sprung up out of those. But in understanding the Ten Commandments, Jesus sums it up by saying, the first five or first four, ever how you do it, and how you think of it, you shall have no other gods before me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is likened to it, which would fulfill the other five or four commandments, depending on how you view it, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that it's fulfilled. So Jesus gives us understanding of the law, unpacks it. But for our case here, when it says those who rely on work of the works of the law are under a curse, understand that we're primarily dealing with the law in the Old Testament given through Moses. Now with that said, verse 10 says that the law cannot do something. Are y'all listening? Verse 10 makes it clear that the law cannot do something. It cannot bring us spiritual life. The law cannot bring spiritual life. It can't bring salvation. It can't bring righteousness before God. So verse 19 of Galatians 3 gets to the obvious question. Look down, scroll down with your eyes, 319. Why then the law? 
Well, that's a good question. If it can't make us righteous, if it can't bring us salvation, then why the law? And so, if it can't do these things, what's the point? And Paul answers that question by telling us that the law was given to show the futility and the weakness and the inability of our flesh. And when he refers to the flesh, he's not talking about this. He's not talking about what you... Reach up and pinch your face. All right? He's not talking about the flesh as in uh, what's covering your bones. It's given the Hebrew word sarts, which is our sinful nature. So, what the law does is expose the weakness, futility, and inability of your sinful nature. It's your nature apart from Jesus Christ. What does the flesh say? Well, the flesh says, I'm the, I'm the authority of my life. I call the shots. I know what is best. I do what I want to do. And don't tell me any different. This is the mindset that Adam and Eve had in the garden. All of a sudden, when God's command came to the mind, you should not eat of the forbidden fruit, what did Adam and Eve say in essence? I can eat this fruit if I want to. Right? That was the response. So Paul reminds the reader that God gave the law to clarify the weakness of the flesh, the futility of the flesh. So how did Christ's death on the cross affect our predicament? That's what it's for, right? That's why we're here today. That's what the cross is here. That's what the cross is for. Last week we looked at those crucial aspects. Today we asked the question, how did Christ's death on the cross affect our situation, our predicament that's given in this text? Let's track through Paul's argument today for edification. You've got to listen fast, right? Here we go. First, we all disobey the law of God. Write that. You got it written down on your paper? We all, everybody in this room disobeyed the law of God. That's made clear in verse 10. He quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show what did the law demand? It, de it demanded obedience. Let me add to it. It demanded perfect obedience. So here's what we know. The law of God exposes our sin. The law of God is perfect and holy and right. And when God shines that law on our hearts, what does it say to us? Well, it exposes our own sinful nature. When Jesus is recounting the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount, He gives very many aspects of the, the law. And He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, wow, who can do that? But He's expanding on the perfect nature of the law because God is perfect and He gave us a perfect law. But the law shows that we cannot be perfect. Why? Because it exposes the fact that we are sinners. To be clear, the law doesn't make us sinners, but rather reveals the fact that we are already sinners. It uncovers the sinfulness of each one of us. In the words of one great theologian, the law was given to make known transgressions obvious. That's why the law was given. To make known transgressions obvious to us. Now listen, if any of you have raised children, raise your hand if you have. You've seen this at work, have you not? You know inside of that little rascal they're sinners. That that heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But what brings it to the surface? A command not to do something. Right? Once you say, you better not do this. You know they're sinful. But all of a sudden... 
that sinful nature is on display once the command comes. So we have the law given to us and God's commands given to us, expounded throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. And once the command is given, it, gives, it arises within us, the real nature downside in our sinful hearts. The perfect law of God exposes the sinful nature in each of us. But it also intensifies our sin. 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. One translation says it was added to produce transgressions. It's the same thing that Paul says to us in Romans 5.20. The law came along to multiply the trespass. The law isn't sinful. The law is perfect and good. But Paul reminds us that under the law, the reign of sin expands in our lives. Why? Because we become more keenly aware that we are sinners every time we read a command. Does that make sense to people in here? It, 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 makes, it, it actually intensifies and broadens the base of our understanding. So in this way, the law doesn't make us better if you're trying to obey it in order to be saved, but it makes you worse. Our hearts naturally resist the law of God. And they grow harder and harder and further apart from God. So the law confronts man with his disobedience, with his continual disobedience, exposes our sin, and actually intensifies our sin. We all disobey the law of God. Number two, we all deserve the wrath of God. Notice the passage Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book and do them. That means we're cursed under the law of God. You know what we deserve, folks? We deserve the wrath of God. We're cursed under the law of God. It's not a good thing to be confronted with sin when you're in the presence of a holy God. Now remember, God is holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. It's not a good thing to be confronted by sin in the presence of a holy God. And God, who has no sin and is wholly dead set against sin, Habakkuk says he is even too pure to look upon sin. Luther said, Martin Luther the Reformer, 1517-ish, said the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say it shows them their sin, that they, by the knowledge of the sin, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, broken, and by the means of these be driven to grace. Ah, when you think about a holy God, aren't you thankful for grace? And not living under the curse of the law today if you're saved. We need grace. Why? Because we stand cursed beneath the law. This is the condition of those who rely on works in order to be saved. One of my friends, Jeff Haddon, and his wife Roxanne, had to travel down to Hawaii a few months ago. And just so happened, as they were there, they get this on their phone. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, you know, Jeff told me, he said, you, you just, spiritual applications just unraveled right before his eyes. <laughs> not only personally, but watching people. You know, Hawaii's on high, high alert anyway, and they ought to be. But listen, the fact is, you know, you're confronted at that moment with the fact that, an, that a missile, 
Uh, Piper used an illustration years before this took place and said that this statement that you stand cursed under the law is like knowing that a hundred warheads are coming toward you. It is, it is to be, and Jeff and Roxanne, when they finally got back together at the hotel, walked out on a balcony with just a few minutes to spare according to the clock and stood there and called their family and said, this, we, we might die. Prepared everybody for it. And of course, 38 minutes passed later, and they came back and said it was an accident. But let me tell you something. That's how everybody in this room stands under Almighty God. You do know that God created the world. He sustains everything in this world. And everybody in this building, it's almost, that's the atomic bomb uh, statement in all the Bible that we, everybody ever born out of Adam is cursed under God, beneath the law. It's the atomic bomb. There's absolutely, with Jeff and Roxanne standing on that balcony, they could not escape. There was no trump card to pull. There was no, whoo, let's wait till tomorrow. It was over. Imagine that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, this is more of a reality than the atomic bomb coming. This is God saying this to you. That you stand under the curse beneath the law, and there's absolutely no escape. When, when God, which verse is Paul quoting? Well, it's Deuteronomy chapter 27, 15 through 26. When he says that, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things, he's quoting Deuteronomy. Do you remember how God set that up? Uh, he had two mountains, and some people were on this side, some were on this side, and they would, um, would kind of catcall back and forth uh, the promises of God and the curses of God because. They needed to know what they were, right? And the Bible tells us more that the curses were prominent. And every time that someone would shout out a blessing and or a curse, someone would say, Amen. The people were like, ooh, we got it. We know exactly what's going on. And some of those curses, of course, had to do with disobedience, uh, how they dealt with uh, people, how they treated one another, and they were... Uh, if you dishonored your mother and father, hello, Tokyo. How about you young people? Most godly thing you can ever do is honor your mother and father and obey them. For thus, when you do so, you are honoring and obeying God. That's what the Bible teaches. So the, think about them children standing around with God thundering from that mountain. Uh, you were not taking him lightly on that day. You were listening to God. And, and that's what was going on in Deuteronomy 27. They understood that they couldn't make their own way to God on that day. That God was absolutely holy and righteous. Not only do we see that we deserve the wrath of God, what does that issue forth into? Well, we stand condemned before God. The Westminster, Westminster Short Catechism says, What does every sin deserve? And here's the answer. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and the life that is to come. Now, folks, that's not a popular statement on C-SPAN. It's just not going to be. It's not a proper response in the world that we live in regarding sin, is it? It's not. However, it's true. And we all stand guilty before God, cursed under the law, and we all stand condemned, under, con condemned by and before God. You know that there's always an attempt, if you're outside of grace, to try to obey enough to be able to bring yourself to God. 
Some people do it by church attendance. If I just go one more Sunday. Now, you ought to go to church. That's because you love Jesus, not, trying to, not, not because you're trying to gain heaven. Because you love the Lord. But we sometimes equate salvation with coming to church. It's not true. We often think, well, if we pray, we're fine. Or if we do good. Or if we're trying to lead our family the right way. And you know what the law says continually? If you're not under grace, guilty. 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 That's what the law says the whole time. Do you feel helpless at this point like I do? We ought to all at this point feel helpless. That's why he gave his law. To show us that we cannot get it right on our own. You just can't. That's all. Uh, I know you may say, Pastor, why in the world are you uh, giving us this stuff? You ought to soft pedal things a little better for us. Why are you preaching and talking about a curse? And about condemnation and about wrath and about disobedience and about futility. Because those are the subjects of the Bible. And I have to give you what the Word of God says because I love you more than Joel Osteen does. I'm just telling you the truth. You have to look at this and say, you got one or two choices. Disregard the Bible and say you want therapeutic pablum and cotton candy. Or you say, you know what preacher, I want you to tell us what the Bible says. Well, here's what the Bible says. We're cursed under the law. We're condemned before God. His wrath abides on everybody apart from Jesus. And we're in utter disobedience and futility without Him. We're in desperate need of a Savior to deliver us from the curse. Don't you love the text? Don't you love it, what He did for us? To remove that curse, Paul reminds us in verse 22. Look how clear this is. Verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Look at this. (laughs) You're locked in and there's no way out. As you sit under the law, you are totally imprisoned. You are, verse 22, you are locked in. You are chained with no hope. And you can't break free in your own strength. Listen to verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Hallelujah! Aren't you thankful for justification by faith? Aren't you grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ? Aren't you thankful for God's covenant, not to Moses, but to us? In Jesus Christ. The final point is Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. By, by Christ's death on the cross, God's Son showed us the price of our freedom. Don't take this for granted. We'll say, well, we're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight, and just about 90% of us will go spiritual AWOL. You couldn't find you with an FBI agent on Sunday evening, right? Do you realize how important it is for us to commune together around the Lord's table? The Bible tells us, don't take it lightly. Oh, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross It's the price of our freedom. Did you note Paul's word in verse 19? Listen to this again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What is that talking about? Well, he mentions the offspring. It's actually the word seed. And he tells you in verse 16 who the seed is. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is? I'm glad some of you looked at the text. Who's the offspring? It is Christ Jesus. So he is the substance. He's the seed of Abraham. It's the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right? The seed of woman. Uh, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he do? Romans 10.4 says that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the law is not fulfilled unless Jesus comes. And it also means this, since Jesus Christ has come, He has fulfilled the law. And if you are to fulfill the law, you have to be in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ, then the law is not fulfilled and you are eternally condemned forever. But in Christ Jesus, the law has been fulfilled. He obeyed the law of God for us. Jesus shows us that the law is good. What did He tell the Pharisees? I did not come to abrogate the law, I came to fulfill it. And, and fulfill, he did, correct? No other religious teacher, whether in the Bible or in any other religious system that are all false, right, can claim righteousness on their own merit, but Jesus could. He that knew no sin. Absolutely. No matter what the ridiculous movie they put forward one year, that Christ did sin. I'm going to tell you, if Christ sinned, throw your Bible away. If Christ sinned, there is no salvation. He, not, he, not, he never once sinned. That's why he could be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So obeying the law on our behalf was utterly crucial as an aspect of the work of salvation that Jesus was to perform. But there's more. Not only did he obey the law, he endured the wrath of God instead of us. Y'all see it in the passage? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. That word redeemed is awesome. If you look back in Paul's day, uh, it is such a great word for us to understand what life was like as we were cursed outside of Christ on the slave market of sin. Redeemed has something to do with purchasing a slave back from an owner. It's to bring a slave back uh, to purchase by paying a price. And it's such an awesome picture. There we sit. We're chained in sin. We're cursed beneath the law. Before God forever. There's nothing we can do. Yet then we see Jesus. We see Him perfectly righteous. No condemnation. He's the Lamb without blemish and without defect. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And He says, I will take the curse for you. You sit under the curse of God, but Jesus said substitutionarily, I will take your place for you. I will bear that curse for you. The curse that we all deserved, being underneath the law. How awesome is this? How awesome is this? How wonderful what He did for us. Christ became a curse instead of us. He was hung on a tree, cursed by God. For us, you've, you've read the text, right? Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthana. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? Because he was bearing your curse and mine. He knew what it was like to, to experience that separation from the Father. Why? Because God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. And Jesus became sin for us. He that knew no sin bore that curse on, on the cross for us. 
How can we even begin this morning to respond to something like this? The summit of all the mosaic points of the law, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment that takes away the curse of the law. That's the teaching of the New Testament. The only way to come to God is through Christ and Christ alone. If we all dwell beneath the curse, Mohammed can't help you. Buddha can't help you. Mormonism can't help you. They don't have the right Christ, according to the Bible. Jehovah Witness can't help you. And I have to say this, even Catholicism can't help you if you believe that the sacraments is what saves you. Because, folks, that's a work. If you believe it's something you do to save yourself, then you're lost. Now, can there be sincere born-again Catholics out there? Yes, they take that up with the Lord. But if they're doing those things, mass, marriage, anything else, to make them think it makes them right before God, then that is not so. It won't make you right before God because that goes against what this book says. And this book says, cursed is everyone who dwells beneath the law. And the only way we can get out of that predicament is through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the King. Hey, that's the real message of Resurrection Sunday, right? It's the real message of resurrection. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul will continually point this out to the Galatian people. That's what changed his heart on the road to Damascus, right? It was the gospel given to him by grace through faith. The gospel is not a moral improvement plan. Y'all do know that, right? It's not a moral improvement plan. It's not about checking off a bunch of boxes and keeping a lot of rules. It's not about being nice to others and getting our relationships and problems fixed so that we'll be successful in life. It's about salvation. It's by grace through faith alone. But you know, we often say that the gospel... Uh, there were like hundreds of people who were polled to give the definition of the gospel. Did you know that even thousands of church members could not give the gospel? They were at, what is the gospel? Well, God has a plan for your life. What is the gospel? God wants a personal relationship with you. What is the gospel? You got to ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord. That's not the gospel. Y'all are listening, right? Are all those things true? In a way. But I'm going to tell you something today. You are in a personal relationship with the king of the universe whether you know it or not. Because God created you. And he is personally one of two things to you right now, this moment. He is personally your savior or he is your judge. You're in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ whether you know it or not. And you're never going to escape that. Personal relationship is not the same thing as knowing him through the gospel. The gospel is clear. Life, death, burial, resurrection, repent and believe because it's the only way to be saved. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel that we preach. It'll never change. And there's no way to heaven apart from it. Let me conclude. I had some other things to say, but time is getting late. Listen to Galatians chapter 6. But for, but, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I can't boast in anything I've done. I'm going to boast in what? Do you see why he's boasting in the cross, folks? When you read Galatians chapter 3, doesn't it make you want to boast in the cross? But note that ending. For I am crucified to the world and yet to me. 
Hello Baptist, living in March of 2018. How is your relationship to the world? Can you say in a cross-centered understanding that you are crucified to this world and the world to you? What does that mean in a nutshell? Well, it really means this, that Jesus Christ is the treasure of your life. You are cross-centered. And this world has no sway on your heart. Its allurements, its allotments, its desires, its pleasures mean nothing to a child of God. Whereas the world dictates those who are lost and everything about them is consumed with the world, that's not true for one who has been crucified with Christ. We're dead to the world. And we're alive to Jesus. How are you doing with that particular application? Are you so sucked up in the world, young people, that it's all about ambitions and goals and what the world has to offer? Have you ever stopped long enough to think about what the cross means to you? That you're going to boast in Jesus more than anything else in life. That, he, that you treasure him more than anything else in life. Let me tell you, the atomic bomb's coming one day. And I'm not talking about from South, North Korea. I'm talking about the end as we know it. The Bible teaches it clearly. And the Bible says that every knee, every tongue shall confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's an absolute statement. I hope you'll bow to him this side of eternity, this side of hell. Not, not when it's everlastingly too late, but today. That's been a pretty simple message, right? It has. We all disobey the law. We all stand under the curse of the law. But Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Great God, we humbly bow before you. And I am so thankful that you have freed us, Jesus Christ, from the law. Paul will say in Romans 8, For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. God, thank you that we can stand before you if we're in Jesus, just as if we have obeyed the law perfectly. Why? Because we put our faith in the one who did obey the law perfectly. How are we saved? By faith. Believing and trusting in what Jesus Christ did on Calvary as our substitute to bear the penalty of our sins. He took our curse upon himself. And we repent. We move from a place of unbelief to a place of belief. And we put our faith and trust in you. And then you robe us with a righteousness that is from you. One who never sinned. That's real salvation. Thank you for your death on the cross. Wherein you satisfied the wrath of God. Satisfied the demands of holy justice. Satisfied the demands of the law. All that you could save us. Thank you, Father, for that. God, thank you. Lord, if there's one under the sound of my voice that's trying to do things in order to be saved, God, would you free them from the law of sin and death? Would you help them look to Jesus only for salvation? Should we obey the law? Absolutely. But it's different when the dynamics in your heart are love to Jesus because of what he's accomplished. We, we obey you. We love you. Lord, you said that. You said it in your word in 1 John. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Father, you tell us that we love you because you first loved us. God, the controls are different in a life that is given over to Jesus Christ. God, help us. And Father, for Christians, help us glory in the cross.
Never boast in anything we've done, but glory in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.